Hello and welcome to Monocle on Culture. I'm Robert Bound. This week we're going on an adventure. Physically, we're not going very far. Our destination is in sunny Rickmansworth, just outside of London. But what we're going to see will transport us through cinematic history. In the grounds of a picturesque country estate, a small brown door turns out to be a portal to a thousand different worlds. We're in Prop Store, an auction house that specialises in film paraphernalia, to have a nose around the lots up for sale in their next auction. The sale comprises 1,100 items from nearly 450 films including Star Wars, Back to the Future, Batman, Halloween, Harry Potter and James Bond. The warehouse is packed to the rafters with giant replicas of some of cinema's most notorious monsters, heads that have been severed by our favourite baddies, swords and spaceships and superhero capes galore, and all sorts of objects and costumes that have starred in some of the biggest blockbusters made to date. It's a treasure trove of items that hold the stories of the films they've been in, the people who've designed them and the stars who've worn and handled them. Prop Store was founded by Stephen Lane in 1998, a film fanatic who saw a bigger picture for his beloved memorabilia. He sells to collectors all over the world from his UK base and another branch in LA and is now one of the biggest auction houses around the world for this type of thing. On a crisp autumn day, I headed out toward the Chiltern Hills to meet Stephen in his well-appointed warehouse just ahead of auction day. velvet rope. Wow. 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 I don't know if you'd be terrified or uh, I thought this is amazing. I'm, I'm standing here in front of Darth Vader, Batman, Spider-Man, someone I'm sure from the games in New York, um, the Fifth Element, and of course the Harry Potter costume. It's incredible stuff surrounded by blasters, lightsabers, something that looks like it might be Galadriel's crown, um, amazing models, um, and all sorts of different kind of genres of stuff in here. Um, what a treasure trove of stuff. We've come on a day out on Monocle on Culture today to, a, I suppose we should say, almost an undisclosed location. This is, I mean, obviously a lot of your auctions are done online amongst um, a beautiful country house and a, and a farmyard and lots of trees. Um, we find ourselves in a huge warehouse full of an absolute cornucopia of wonderful, amazing entertainment props. Maybe um, tell us a little bit first about where Prop Store came from, about the, about the genesis of the company. Sure. Well, I mean, really, it's uh, a collecting hobby that just went out of control some 30 years ago, frankly. I've always been a collector from a very, very young age. And then in the early 90s, I started revisiting my youth by going after the small action figures that were released back in the 70s and 80s from Star Wars, rebuilt that collection. And then sort of I started finding some of these random props and costumes at collectors fairs and, and conventions. I mean, this was before they were called Comic-Cons. This was in church halls and things like that. And that really sort of piqued my interest. I 
was just fascinated by the fact that this stuff was turning up there and there was no sort of established place to go to there was no one-stop shop to go and buy props and costumes and so I, I picked up a sort of a reasonably significant piece at a toy fair it was a Star Wars Rebel Blaster which was really the first really significant item that I bought and I paid 500 pounds for that at a time when I was trading in action figures for sort of 10 and 20 pounds so it was a big commitment for me but once I bought it I was just like okay you know where do I go with this how do I find out more and I tracked down the company who made the guns for Star Wars uh, an armor is called Bapsi and Company and I went and visited them showed them the blaster they authenticated it for me and they offered me a tour while I was there and it was that that tour that really just opened my eyes to the way the film industry worked with production assets at that time. It's very, very different now. It's all changed. But back then, the assets were made by a company and then hired into the film. And then they came back to the company afterwards. And that meant that armorers and costume departments and special effects houses and places like that had all these treasures just sitting on their shelves, actually waiting for them to redress or refinish or rework to then hire to another production. And so I was asking the guys, I was like, well, you know, that's from Flash Gordon and that's from Clash of the Titans, that's from Aliens. What happens if it doesn't get rented? He said, oh, we just throw it in a skip. I was like, how can this <laughs> wow. thrown in a skip? You know, these are, A, you know, significant from a popular culture perspective. You know, these are artifacts that future generations, they should be preserved for future generations. And also, you know, surely there should be some commercial value to these. You know, these are an art form in their own right. And that was the journey. That was the start of the journey for me. And it was, I was very fortuitous because, I started collecting and, and sort of actively pursuing this content really before anybody else was doing this commercially. And, and that meant I was in first and, you know, I got networked with a massive amount of people within the film industry. And then the internet came along and it's, you know, it sounds very cliched, but the business couldn't have evolved without the internet. You know, we're, we're selling to Batman collectors in Asia. We're selling to Star Wars collectors in North America, all over the world. And without that reach, without that access through the internet, almost impossible. I used to trade, you know, by taking uh, photos, getting them developed at Boots and sending my airmail to people. You know, that's how it all started. And that was just completely impractical to scale. And so that was it. That was the start of the journey. And as you say, here we are today, standing in prop store in the UK, 15,000 square feet here. And then I started at Los Angeles, our branch out there in 2007, about 20,000 square feet filled with goodies as well and treasures too. Wow. What an amazing story that is. We're quite far from the church hall. <laughs> well, let's take a wander around this amazing room, um, casting eyes around so many familiar pieces of kind of film lore, film history, some pretty horrendous looking ghouls and monsters around us as well. Where should we start? Where, where would you like to start the tour? Why don't we start here, actually, with okay. uh, what we have here is from Back to the Future. So this is one of Marty McFly's hoverboards from Back to the Future. This is actually the front cover catalogue piece for our auction. Yeah. This is quite a significant hoverboard because of the finish on it. And um, the, when you look at this specifically, you can see the light reflecting on it. And it, and it has sort of a, a three-dimensional aspect to it, which is created by using a lenticular film. So this is known as a lenticular board. Now the lenticular boards, without boring your listeners, is how they started uh, as they, they got underway with production. This is how they wanted them to look. And if you look at the details quite closely, you can see that all of these uh, decals are hand applied, they're individual very, very time-consuming to produce. And for a film like Back to the Future, where this particular prop is so heavily used, they have to make multiples of them. So they would not only have hero versions and lightweight versions, and this is a lightweight carrier around version, but they would have ones with you know wheels on for skateboards, on springs to make it look like he's hovering and stuff like that. 
And so they, so they might make sort of 40, 50 of these in total, including all the different iterations. And to try and do that one at a time was just too time consuming. So as they progressed into production, what they did was they actually just took a photograph of this and then used a photo print of it and then just laid that down. So we know from the construction of this that it's an early version of it. This, this hoverboard is kind of like a key element in the film. It helps him escape and all the rest of it. It's got, you know, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a piece of plot as much as a piece of tech, I suppose, and as much as it is. A, a prop as well. Generally speaking, as we look around the room, is it props that are sort of have a starring role in films or very specific props that might only appear, appear once that tend to get your buyers sort of excited? Do you know what I mean? Things that are kind of the, a film hinges on and Indiana Jones pushing this particular statue. Is that statue sort of worth something or is it his hat that's always the most sort of expensive lot? Yeah, I mean, that's a really good question. And, and a lot of that is based upon the particular collector, actually, and what it is that they like to collect. You know, we're dealing with people who come from all backgrounds who have a huge variety of interests. Some people only collect props. Some people only collect costumes. Other people are interested in set deck or production artwork. And so the value lies in the eye of the beholder, really. And that's what we find quite fascinating about it. You know, to, to, to a Back to the Future fan who, who really is into hoverboards, this will be the holy grail. But if you're from the Stormtrooper helmet from Star Wars, completely disinterested, not because it's a costume piece, but just because this is what he's into. So, you know, uh, both the Golden Idol uh, and the hat from, from Indiana Jones, hugely valuable pieces in their own right. We sold uh, a hat from the Temple of Doom last year for £300,000. We sold uh, a Raiders of the Lost Ark hat prior to that. I went for about £400,000. But the Golden Idol, if that was to come up to sale at the at open market at auction, that would be a directly comparable price. You've got to make sure it's the real deal. There's a lot of replicas of those out there. It should have baby doll eyes fitted into it because originally it was set so the eyes would actually move and track Indy as he comes through the cavern there through the through the temple so uh, sorry going down the rabbit hole of detail there but as I said I can I can go on many tangents and keep talking about this stuff all day long okay let's uh, let's take a little let's have a look at the Star Wars section inevitably we're going to end up at the Star Wars section I suppose <laughs> well we got there pretty quickly uh, yes so in the cabinet here we have uh, an array of different Star Wars pieces from from the different films as well so you've got material here that's from the prequels some of the lightsabers that we're seeing here and then you've also got some of the material from the original trilogy uh, in total, in the auction catalogue, we've got over 100 Star Wars lots. Star Wars content is incredibly popular with collectors, both because of its aesthetics, but also that sort of instantly recognisable nature to them. You know, there's not many people who'd walk into a room and see a Stormtrooper helmet and not know what it is. And that also is a big part of the appeal to collectors. So starting at the top here, actually right at the back, we have a, a really rare um, Empire Strikes Back poster. It's called the, uh, the sort of Gone with the Wind style UK release. Yeah, we've got the, the the sort of clinch there I mean the kiss yes yeah absolutely hence the name oh, <laughs> yeah and um, and that's that that in itself is is a rare poster and a valuable poster that has an auction estimate of around ten thousand pounds on it just for a poster rare to find it in that sort of condition as well it's in beautiful condition and really strong vibrant colors you can see there in the artwork too and coming down the shelf, we have uh, Anakin's Hayden Christensen's lightsaber for, from Revenge of the Sith. So this is actually what we call um, a hero lightweight. So we talked a minute ago about the Back to the Future hoverboards, how you have these different styles that are manufactured for the film. Exactly the same for the lightsabers. So for the lightsabers, they would have a, a hero close-up heavyweight version, which would be all metal. This is actually made of resin. It looks like metal. It looks like shiny, high-polished metal, but it's actually made of resin. It's then vacuum metal 
stabilized to give it that real metallic look to it. Then you have the rubber grips around the uh, around the side there, and all the various uh, switches and and uh, diodes on there as well. Um, I mean, this is an amazing piece of kit. Super handsome thing. So that the weightier objects are put in the the actor's hand, so that it's got that. It's got that weight for the close-up shots, but then when they're using it to, for a fight scene or something, then they use the light, lightweight one. Is that how it works? Yeah, very close to that. So this would probably be used uh, as what we would call a belt saber. So around the, the side of it, it has a little clip that clips onto the belt. So that means that it's going to hang on his belt, look like a hero close-up version, so it can be used in close-up shots, but doesn't have that weight dragging down his costume or if he's running around or something like that. For fight sequences, you might have a rubber version of that. So for stunt versions, you know, if he's getting close up close and personal. In, in battling and things like that and then from there you go to sort of the special effects versions which would have had uh, for Revenge of the Sith they actually had carbon fibre blades which were then vacuum sealed uh, with a plastic film over them so they could key the digital effects off the top of it as well. Do these things vary wildly in value and you know in terms of as I say, the kind of shock that they were in, or the, the what they were used for. Yeah, actually, that has a that has quite a big impact on uh, on props and costumes, especially if we can do what's called screen matching. Now, screen matching is going to be very difficult for a piece like this because we're looking at the really intricate details, you know, almost on a forensic level, uh, where we see what we can match up both in the prop that we have or the costume we have and what's on screen. So some of that is born out of us going through sort of behind-the-scenes photos. We have a a huge reference library here at Prop Store where we scanned uh, crew members' behind-the-scenes photos. We've curated a massive collection over nearly 23 years now, I suppose we're going. Um, And so we're using that. But then also we're just using modern technology. You know, with Blu-ray now, we can freeze frame a Blu-ray and zoom right the way in and look at the weave of a cloth. And so we can actually see whether or not we can actually match that cloth weave or we can match a wood grain or the organic materials. So screen matching is quite important to collectors because it sort of raises it to the next step. The sort of provenance factor, right? Yeah, that's right. And it's it's, it's, some of it's the provenance, but it's also the sort of... uh, I don't know, the sort of boasting element of it. You can sit there, freeze frame with your mates and you're you know, watching TV and go, that's mine, that one right there, that is this hoverboard. You know? I've just shot you with that exact blaster. <laughs> yeah. Yes, yes. So it's, it's all, it's, you know, it's, there's sort of levels of it and also, you know, levels of how the sort of layers of interest there are with collectors as well. And I mentioned provenance before, but where does this stuff come from? I guess an amazing amount of sources um, and I know you're obviously in touch with amazing you have a, a an amazing mu- a little black book I'm sure of contacts but uh, generally tell us about the, the provenance a little bit yeah sure well if we talk about the sourcing of the material and and believe you me it's what keeps me up at nights um, wondering how we're going to get some really cool stuff for next year's auction you know once we put a, a, a catalogue to bed um, and it is you're right it's it's born out of 30 years of me collecting personally, so the contacts I've made over that period of time, um, the friends I've made within the film industry. Um, it used to be a lot of it would come from rental houses, but as I mentioned earlier, that process has now changed. So back when I started, these were all a byproduct of the filmmaking process. So it was like the products in the can, that's all they care about. The rest of the assets, they can just they can go afterwards because we don't need them anymore. And so there was just stuff scattered everywhere. They used to have end of production sales. Cast and crew could go in and buy things. You know, I bought a collection of Roger Moore's shirts, James Bond shirts from one of the costume guys. And he just bought them all because they were Alamode at that moment. They were high fashion and he could get them for a pound each. And as it happened, he never actually wore them. They just hung in his wardrobe for like 30 years when before I bought them. And so all this sort of content went out into the mix. Then on top of that, 
Uh, Prop Store was established 23 years ago, so collectors we sold to 20 years ago are bringing content back to us as well. And because there's been a huge jump in the values, you know, these things have, have appreciated in value so dramatically over the last 20 years and continue to do so as well. As more people suddenly find out that you can actually own uh, an original artifact that was used in a film. So the more people that come in, it doesn't give us any more supply on that sort of this sort of vintage material that we're looking at today. Um, so we're going to be working with all those crew members and cast members as well, collectors at the same time. And then we also partner with production companies and studios and distributors too. So now that the assets are managed in that manner, it means that the production companies are tracking the assets right the way through productions. So the only way that you're going to get a hold of a lot of this content is by working with them and partnering with them. So we do that as well and so it's this huge array of different sources and that all becomes part of the chain of provenance you know when we're looking at an artifact the first question is well how did you get this where did this come from what connection do you have that ties us back to the source the original film you know what the moment in time that it was in front of the camera um, and then we'll go through researching it as I say we're, we're very familiar with the materials that are used for all of these these assets and artifacts we know a massive amount of people who worked on these things we can go and ask them questions if we need to as well and and as I said previously, we'll then look at the Blu-ray and the, all, the, all the archive and reference photos that we have to match it all up. So it's a really multifaceted process. For the sake of time, we're going to have to skip on and do a couple more lots. By the way, I'm, 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 I'm uh, amazed at your, your modesty. You didn't come in dressed as Batman or Spider-Man, um, who are looming, looming over us uh, in the corner behind us. Um, <laughs> there, must be, there must be the temptation to test out, in inverted commas, some of these, some of these costumes and props, presumably. Well, we're standing in the right place for you to ask that question, actually, because we're standing next to a couple of uh, costumes here from Elf. So we've got Bob Newhart's costume there, who is Papa Elf. And then, of course, we have Buddy the Elf's costume, uh, played by Will Ferrell as well. Uh, it's quite a tight trouser for Will Ferrell. I thought he was sort of plump of thigh, Will, but there you go. Yeah, watch the film again. You're right. They're definitely tight. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, this is a costume actually that I uh, owned uh, going back soon after the film came back in the, uh, came out in the early 2000s and um, I actually wore that to a Christmas fancy dress party in 2006 <laughs> I can assure you it's the only costume the only time that I've actually worn a costume that was and it was in my collection I owned it I didn't really feel that it was hugely valuable here it is today in the uh, in the auction with a, an estimate of 20 to 30 thousand pounds the bidding on this has been monstrous. That's at seventy thousand pounds already, and we have phone bidders lined up for it as well. There is so much love for Buddy the Elf right now. I mean, it's, it is just one of those costumes, and it's one of those films that's become synonymous with Christmas with so many people. So, yeah, I mean, I, I know I don't dress as Batman, but back then in two thousand six, <laughs> yes, I did wear that costume to a party, and I'd love to have owned it again. Well, as we stand um, in uh, one of the corners here of the, at the auction house, um, I'm just relieved to hear that you didn't dress up as. In Mila Jovovich's Fifth Element costume, which <laughs> is sort of looking slinkily to our left here. It's a bit of a bit, that would be a bit of a mankini, wouldn't it, if you tried that one on? Yeah, so you've got, you got uh, Mila Jovovich's costume. Obviously, she plays Lilu, so you've got this sort of orange suspenders there. These were, good. These were Jean-Paul Gaultier, didn't he do the costumes for this? Yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. All inspired by Jean-Paul Gaultier. He was very, very heavily involved with the production. We've had a number of the costumes and props over the years. They, they get a lot of love, you know, the, for the design, for that film. Brilliant, brilliant. And, and just the content and the creative that was put together for it, it's really fun. You know, it's really, really visual 
And um, yeah, these costumes just stand out and it's super rare actually to get a Lilu complete like this. We do have another set of the orange suspenders, as I call them, in the auction as well. But it's so rare to see the, the leggings that she has there and the crop top as well. And the same with the Corbin Dallas costume with his orange shirt and those uh, really uniquely designed trousers that he's wearing as well. It, we don't, you just don't, don't, don't turn up. So it's exciting to have them here and, and both as a pair. Yeah, it's incredible stuff. And as we as we wander around, I wonder if there's a kind of is there a hot era? Is there a hot franchise? I mean, I'm sure stuff like Star Wars, Bond. I'm looking at a, at a picture of presumably some props that were. I can see, a, in fact, a, a Spectre ring there, and yeah. they're sort of James in James in the James Bond section. These sort of big ticket movies, I'm sure, do wonderful business for you. What about the sort of surprises that have, have popped up of, of things that it seem to be perhaps even to you very niche, but kind of do exceptionally well in the sale? Yeah, we, we're constantly surprised by uh, what some things sell for. You know, it's uh, last year we had a, a Jason hockey mask uh, from, um, I think it was Jason X, and that had an auction estimate of twenty dollars to $30,000. Now, this was the sale that took place in our out of our Los, at Los Angeles facility in June. And that sold for $225,000. And that was a major surprise. Yeah, absolutely. But we've had pieces uh, throughout the years that, that often do take us by surprise. And that's the sort of the real fun aspect of auctions is just waiting to see what where the fireworks are going to be. And it is it is highly addictive viewing as well. This, these auctions, this auction will be streamed over three days, it'll be three days live stream, six to seven hours a day from 3 p.m. GMT. Um, and we have people who will literally pull up a comfy chair, get it up on the big screen. We'll be there. And sit for six to seven hours a day and watch every single lot because you never know what's going to happen with the next lot. And it can be the most obscure thing sometimes that you get. You know, I couldn't have forecast that Buddy the Elf would be at £70,000 before auction day. You know, that's just astonishing to me. I was going to ask you actually about restoration, looking at some of those, some of the original Star Wars props and all of this stuff and some of these older Bond, uh, Bond things as well. There's a sort of sliding scale in restoration, isn't there, across, across the whole art world, the whole auction world. How much do you restore something to make it saleable and how much do people want it sort of in its original, slightly battered, love-worn love style? Where are you on that sliding scale with re- restoring stuff? Well, I, th- I think as much as anything else, it's, it's ensuring that something's stable. Um, you know, especially when we're looking, if we look at the gremlin down here, uh, that was from... Let's look at the gremlin. Let's look at the gremlin. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it's a good example. So this is, this is a gremlin from uh, Gremlins 2, the new batch. Um, and this is made of foam latex um, and a latex uh, mix of, of rubbers there as well. You can actually see as you look at it closely, it's still got fishing line attached to it across uh, it, yeah, which was yeah. used to puppeteer it. Um, but actually, as you look even more closely, you can see that there are some some small cracks here in the surface and you can see around the back of the ear here where it's just got some 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 of the latex actually breaking down and breaking away now in a a situation like this what we don't want to have to do is completely rebuild this from the ground floor up and nor does the collector but there is every argument there to have a specialist look at that and very carefully layer in some fresh latex into that crack and then touch the paintwork into it so it fills it, it it supports it it protects it from breaking 
breaking down any further. But once the work is done, it's what we would class as sympathetic restoration where, you know, you, you, you don't want to completely refresh this. You don't want it to look like it's brand new and just come out of the shop. You know, look at the Maximus Greaves there from Gladiator where it's got a chip and some paint dinks on it on the side there. You know, that's, that's, that's definitely filmic wear and tear, isn't it? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So we're not going to want to mess with that. Um, so I think it's as much about, as I say, stabilization and, and protecting it and making sure it's just not going to break down and degrade any further. Um, but there are, some, there are some people who take it further. And it's, it's again, it's down to uh, each, individual, each individual collector and the aesthetic that they want to, and the, the artifact that they want to end up with. Part of that, though, is, you know, it's history, it's story, it's, it's journey that it goes on. So it's just about awareness and it's about personal preferences as well. Um, and here we are in the kind of gruesome corner here uh, with a very familiar looking battered trilby uh, belonging to F- Freddy Krueger, I guess, and underneath something from his um, w- very, very well-worn <laughs> autumn collection. <laughs> um, do, you, do you know w- w- with, with something like this, with Freddy Krueger's costume, this is amazing to have this stuff, by the way. Um, do you know how many of these were knitted? This amazing, famous jumper, this horrendous, <laughs> horrendous thing. Do you know how many of these were knitted? Is that sort of part and parcel of the, the sort of rarity value? And, and, and does that sort of go into the provenance notes in the, in the auction catalogue? Hard to establish, to be honest with yeah. you. Very, very hard to establish. There, are some, In some films, there are references as to how many costumes, you know, we've seen some of the, the Terminator uh, films when you when you watch the behind-the-scenes documentaries and things like that, you know, you can see a row of 40 Terminator costumes lined up. And some of it will be born out of the practical nature uh, and the use and the requirements of the jumper. So, you know, if that gets battle-damaged, if it gets torched, if it, you know, gets slashed, if anything that gets bloody, then it means that they're going to need more multiples of that. So very, very much dependent upon the actual, um, as I say, practical nature of each. And very often that's not specifically detailed anywhere because it wouldn't just be the costume uh, house. It wouldn't be just the, the costume department, sorry, who would be managing that because as soon as you've got a tech it, it's got to go to the special effects department. So they, they might call a number and then how many of those actually get teched, how many get used. And so you can very, very quickly lose track of that. But what I can tell you is this is the only Freddy jumper from this film that we've ever handled. And the, the Freddy fedora that's there as well, we haven't had one of those. I can't even remember the last time we had one of those, maybe 10 years ago, something along those lines. And so even though with all the Freddy films that are out there uh, and all the hats that would have been worn, it still comes down to the rarity is really what's the availability back to the supply and demand if if there's not out there and you want one the prop store auction this year is your one chance to get that and it might be another 10 years before another one comes around so that's again you know a really interesting aspect to uh what what, what dictates where it's going to land value wise as well so we sort of turn around and see we've got a medusa we've got a, a sort of a, the, the, that ghoulish guy with the the eyeball in his palm from Pan's Labyrinth. There's a Terminator. Yeah. What, what's 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 that guy called? It's a creepy pale man. I think. Creepy pale man. Yeah. Yeah. Just pale man. I call him creepy pale man because it looks pretty creepy. Yeah. I mean that's uh, yeah. I mean that's a, that's a wonderful thing. These are actually replicas. So these were actually made by DDT, okay. uh, who were the creature and makeup effects house that uh, Oscar Oscar winning creature and makeup effects house who made them for the film, and they then had to make some replicas for Guillermo del Toro for an exhibition, a touring exhibition that they, that they uh, assisted with, uh, which was all about the work that he'd, uh, he'd he'd produced over the years, and then they were allowed to make a couple of extras as replicas so incredibly impressive the beauty of these things is when we talk about the materials not lasting these are made of fiberglass they're made of metal work these are going to last forever um but just just beautifully constructed as well um and uh not wanting to labor too much on star wars but uh, uh, an r2d2 
down here. I mean, wow, anyone would love anyone would love one of these. But in unfamiliar, uh, an unfamiliar colorway, it looks like it's in this kind of desert regalia here. Yes, well, this is this is just, in fact, if you look in the corner, it's a pretty wicked uh, set of uh, droids that we've got there. We've got a T-800 from Terminator 2. We've got the ABC Warrior robot there from Judge Dredd as well. And then we have an R2 Astromech droid from the more recent films. So this was used on both Solo and Rogue One. Um, and so this isn't actually R2-D2. It's just one of the R2 units that you see this one's really heavily featured in the films as well it actually turns up as three different droids so it has three different designations and then it also has two comes in two different colors so this was reskinned from this into a red color so everything that you can see is mustard color there went red as well um, but yeah what i love about this is a couple of things first of all you can see it's still distressed and dirty that's because it's exactly as it was when it was shot for the final time on the kessel set on the solo and then when you lift the dome of this off this is a fully remote control droid or has all the lights you know this is one of the ones that you see moving around on set but on the inside the droid builder who built this and loaned this into the production actually recorded all the dates times and stages that it was filmed on as well so you've got this great record of events inside the droid as well which which documents it beautifully going back to the sort of provenance conversation that we had earlier so it's, you can't really get better than that and just uh, just finally do you still get that kind of thrill when you kind of open the tea crate you jemmy open the tea crate uh or fairly fairly carefully i should imagine with the value of lots of these items you still get that amazing buzz when you see some familiar a mask a, a prop something a costume the, the fabric of a costume peeping out of the out of the box Oh, absolutely. I never get bored of this. If you know, we can come up to my office later on, and in my office, I have Christopher Reeve's suit from Superman, the first film. I have John Hurt's space suit from Alien. I have Clancy Brown's Kurgan costume from Highlander, and I have Jack Nicholson's costume from Batman. And they're just sitting in my office because I just love those things. I've got a baby Ewok in there as well. And it's as you do, of course. <laughs> Who doesn't? <laughs> A well-appointed office. Um, thank you so much um, for talking us through. This is an amazing, amazing treasure trove of stuff. And uh, I'm sure it's going to be a wonderful auction. We better make ourselves scarce because that weird pale guy um, from Pan's Labyrinth is looking at us through the palm of his hand. I think it's time to, uh, to call it a day. Thank you so much. Been a pleasure. Thank you. Well, what, would you, um, what would you wear home from this? Um... I think I would probably go home dressed as Batman. Yeah? Yeah. It's a good way of... How fun. about you? No. I might put on Freddy Krueger's jumper. <laughs> don't know how far you'd get. I don't know how far I'd get. <laughs> no, exactly. That was Stephen Lane, founder and CEO of PropStore. You can see the full catalogue of the items up for sale at PropStore.com. And if you fancy a piece of film history for yourself, then the auction will take place from the 9th till the 11th of November. Good luck with that bidding. This episode of Monocle on Culture was, of course, produced by Holly Fisher. We'll be back at the same time next week when we'll be at the Saatchi Gallery in Chelsea chatting to some of this year's very fresh art school graduates. But until then, from me, Robert Bounds, thanks for tuning in.